0: Good morning everyone. It's, uh, it's really good to be back, to be amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, the church here, um, the family of God. And it's encouraging to know that I'm back again, which means I obviously wasn't too bad last time. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice. It's really good. Um, so I'm going to start this morning by giving an apology because last time I was here, I was preaching and I preached on the second part of the Lord's Prayer. And I spoke for a, for quite a while at the beginning before I got into the Lord's Prayer about hopefully this will come up behind me. Oh, there you go, love. I spoke about love, and I spoke about what I believed God was showing me about how everything that we do, everything we are, needs to be done in love and with love, motivated by love. And I spoke about how Paul says that if you've got no, if you don't have love, you are nothing. I stand by that 100%. That is all true, it's clear. The Bible is unequivocal, it's undisputable. Love is to be the mark of true followers of Christ. Jesus says in John 13:35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what's my apology for then? Well, my apology is this. I set you up to fail. I told you about this love, that it is fundamental to being one of God's children. But I failed to leave you with the proper motivation that would enable you to love in the impossible ways that God calls us to. You see, love isn't something we can just summon out of thin air. It's not an act of human will. In fact, before we continue, I'm going to put a definition of love by the Oxford English Dictionary, hopefully, behind me. There we go. So, the Oxford English Dictionary defines love as an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest and pleasure in something. So, we see that love is an intense feeling, but we know that it is actually more than just a feeling, because we know that instinctively, love doesn't just stop at feelings, it drives actions. And we often hear things like, love makes you do crazy things. Love is also defined here as a great interest or pleasure in something. So how do we get from a point of knowing that we should have God's love and live out that love to actually being able to do that? Where does our motivation come from and where can we get this great love? How can we obtain such an impossible love? Well, 1 John 4.19 tells us, we love because he first loved us. And that's the amazing thing about this love that God is calling us to. Because it's not like a normal love. It's not like a relationship with your husband or your wife whereby there is some sort of mutual meeting, a flourishing relationship. It's not like two people meeting, sharing common interests or developing a friendship. This love that we develop, we develop like a child. Because when a child is newborn, They don't have any knowledge of what love is. They are ignorant in regards to love. They are born and they are needy, and all they know is to have those needs met. But as they grow, and as those needs are satisfied by the parents, then they grow in their relationship with their parents, and their love is deepened. They grow in their understanding with their parents, and their love grows. But the parent loves them from before they were even born. And we see the same with God but it's much more dramatic love. Because, you see, unlike cute newborn babies, we aren't cute. We are sinful creatures. We are people who are drawn to naturally be selfish and greedy, hurtful people. We usually put on a bit of a veneer on this, a bit of respectability, but the reality is that if we can project our thoughts onto this screen behind me for everyone to see, If we could show everything we'd ever thought or done behind me, then I don't think there would be a single one of us left in this room. I genuinely think we'd all run out in shame. Because I know that everyone here has thought things or done things that no one else knows about. Things that you are ashamed of, that I am ashamed of. And that's just the way that we are without God. And if you think that you're not like that, if you're sat here thinking that's not me, I'd be happy for you to project my thoughts and actions onto the screen behind me then you're in trouble because that's a really serious thing because you've got pride in your life and you think you're good enough but there will be points in your life where you have done things that are deeply shameful and if you've got pride in your life that's dangerous, it's deadly so here we are we are creatures of sinfulness and shame shame so deep that we don't even want other people who are just like us to see it And here we have a holy and perfect being, a being who has never known that shame and sinfulness, who's never known the things that we have known. And in this being steps, and he says, I love you. You see, there's nothing in us that can motivate God to love us. We have never been good enough for God, we were never lovable, we weren't cute like the newborn baby. And yet this perfect being declares his love for us and in doing so creates a love for us. It creates in us a love for him. Now that is unconditional love. Love that is incomprehensible to the human mind. But how can this God of love be in a relationship with us, these sinful, shameful beings, when he is so pure and holy? There's a preacher called Paul Washer who calls this the greatest problem in all of Christendom. The fact that God is good and we are not. And if God is good and just, and if he must punish evil, then how can he be close to us? We see in Romans 5.8, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And we see in Romans 3.25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So we see, first of all, that like newborn babies, we are helpless. We have this great need. The Bible makes it clear that all will have sinned, every single one of us every single person sitting here, every single person alive on the planet today. All of us have sinned. And more than that, we've fallen short of the glory of God. You see, God designed us. When he made us, he designed us for glory. We see this in Genesis 1. God is creating absolutely everything. And after each day, he takes a step back, he looks at it, and he says, it is good. Then he gets to day six, and he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. And after this, he looks and he says, it is very good. You see, God differentiates us from the rest of creation, because when he created us sinless, he said that we were very good. So why is it, compared to the rest of creation, that we are very good, and creation is just good? Well, the key is Genesis one twenty six. God says this, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. You see, we're made in the image of God. We were made to bear his image. We were made for glory. So when we sin, we don't just sin, but we fall short of the glory of God, of what he designed and created us for. We take the most precious thing that God has ever created, the only thing that's ever been made in his image, and we ruin it. We twist this beautiful creation of God into something evil and disgusting. And that is our great problem and our greatest need. God is completely within his rights to destroy us. And more than just within his rights, justice demands it. And God is perfectly just. So here we have it. We are these disgusting creatures deserving nothing more than death. And in steps Jesus. Perfect, sinless, shameless, beautiful, spotless Jesus. And what does God the Father do? He presents Jesus, God the Son, as the sacrifice for our sins he makes a way for these wretched, twisted images of God to be made whole and perfect again. Isaiah 53 says this. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly, he was condemned. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. So what we have written here in the Old Testament, long before Jesus was born is this really amazing description of Jesus, the Christ. Of his death, his resurrection, and his saving work. Now it starts by saying that he has been unjustly condemned for the rebellion of God's people. And then it states something absolutely mind-blowing. It says, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. God the Father has planned this in advance. God the Father has crushed God the Son. So it may look like, from an earthly perspective, Jesus was killed by men. And to a certain extent, that is true. But when he is on the cross, the guards went to break Jesus' legs. They went to break his legs because crucifixion is a slow, torturous death. But when they got there, they realized they didn't need to break his legs because Jesus was already dead. Now, Jesus died significantly quicker than most victims of crucifixion. And I believe that is because God the Father had crushed him. He had crushed him under the weight of our sin. You see, the wages of sin are death. And therefore, Jesus' bodily death, was, his natural death on the cross, was necessary. But when we were designed, we were designed for eternal life. Death is just a consequence of the fall but the punishment we deserve is eternal. In Matthew 25, 46, it says, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Because we've defiled the image of the eternal God, we deserve an eternal punishment. So here we have Jesus taking on the weight of our eternal punishment God the Father crushing his Son. And that was his good plan. But why? Why is that a good plan? Because when his m- life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. Put it simply, this is how God can be just, punishing the crimes that our sinful, fallen, inglorious race have committed, and yet still be loving. He's using Jesus as willing sacrifice to bring us back to him, making us perfect through Jesus' blood. God's good plan, the gospel, the good news, is that we can be made right with God, no matter how awful we have been. Because Jesus, God the Son, loves us so much, he willingly lays down his life. And God the Father willingly put the punishment we deserve on him. He crushed him, because he loves us and the only way that we can be together is if the price for sin is paid this is god's love and this is how much he loves us but we also see here not just the willingness of jesus but the satisfaction the pleasure of jesus in his sacrifice yet when his life is made an offering for sin he will have many descendants When he sees all that he has accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And what causes Jesus' satisfaction? His satisfaction, his joy, comes from what his own suffering has accomplished. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Jesus' joy is in making you right with him. Everything, he gives everything he possibly can. He gives his own life so that you and I can know him and be righteous like him. So going back to what I said at the beginning, answering the question I originally asked, where does the motivation to love come from? It comes from coming before the truth of our own sinfulness, recognizing that we are sinful, shameful, we are a twisted broken image of God. Of seeing that there is nothing in us to love and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And then we can look up and we can see this being of pure, perfect love who loves us even when there's nothing lovable about us. Looking up and seeing this being, God himself, who is so loving that he will stop at nothing to run to us and embrace us wiping away every stain of sin, making us pure and perfect, making us like Christ. And we don't just stop there. This isn't the end point, but this is the very beginning. Because what do you think will keep us captivated for eternity? Eternity is a really, really long time. It's literally forever. So there needs to be something that's going to stop you going mad for eternity. Because let's face it, there's nothing on earth that you wouldn't get bored of if you did it for a thousand years on end. Netflix, completed it. Every book ever written, read it. Every instrument ever devised, played it. There has to be something so profound, so infinite, that you are going to spend forever just trying to experience more of it. And that something is God's love. Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus. He says this. I pray that his glorious unlimited resources, from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. You see, Christ's love is just too great to fully understand. It's so great that an eternity will not be long enough to experience, to fully experience, to comprehend everything about it. His love is uncomprehendable, And I think there is something of a hint in Philippians as to why we will never be able to comprehend it fully, to why it is so big that it will take an eternity to experience. Philippians 2.6 tells us this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. We are image bearers of God, but we are not equal with God. We are created beings with something of God's glory bestowed upon us. However, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the uncreated Son, God himself, he is God, fully equal with God the Father but in his amazing love for us, he did not hold on to that position. You see, we can't comprehend existing eternally. We can't comprehend being infinitely powerful, being able to create every star in the universe effortlessly by just speaking a word. We can't comprehend knowing everything that's ever happened and ever will happen, knowing every thought of every person who ever lived. And if we can't comprehend this, We can't comprehend this, but I can guarantee this, that if we in our natural fallen state could have this power, then there is not a chance we would ever give it up. We would never have shown the infinite love and mercy that God has shown to us. So if we can't comprehend him, who he is, and the power he holds, then we're really going to struggle to understand how he gave up all of that and the cost that that gave to him. Why don't you try and imagine for a second the humility of willingly going from the most powerful, exalted being ever. Uncreated, God's had no starting point. A being in whom angelic beings fall down before in worship, crying out loud, holy, holy, holy. Try and imagine going from being that to being confined to a baby born into poverty, spending your life being impoverished, doubted, hated, and ultimately killed. And killed in the cruelest way imaginable. Killed by the very people who you created, by the people you came to save. In imagining this, we can grasp a really tiny amount of the love that must have motivated Jesus. Because what else would motivate you to make such a sacrifice. So again, how can we love perfectly? We can love perfectly by knowing God, who is perfect love. We know his loving kindness, his willingness to give up everything to come after us, even when we are lost in our own mess. Once we've experienced this love for ourselves, then that is all the motivation you will ever need to love others. But before I close, there's a couple of other points I want to make about God's love, and in particular, how it relates to or works out in our life. See, the first point I want to address is regarding people who here probably have already experienced this love. Those of us who have been born again, Christians, But more specifically, I want to talk about a way in which we know God's love. And it may not be in a way which you necessarily expect me to be talking about, in a way that you'd necessarily think of experiencing love. And it may well be that I'm actually addressing some of us here. I'm talking about a believer who has been set free by the love of God, and yet who finds himself again in bondage to sin and to shame. It may be that you started your walk with God, And God cleared something from your life, something unhealthy or ungodly, like lust or greed, anger or gossip, unkind speech or addiction. Maybe you're a gambler or drank too much, or maybe you watched pornography. Or maybe you've struggled with these things since your conversion. But You see, when God saved you and convicted you of your sin, he gave you the ability to be free from the bondage of it. But we live in a world where sin abounds. We live in these bodies which the Bible tells us they fight against us. They desire the old ways. And yes, unfortunately, sometimes we slip. But in here, we can experience the love of God again. If you belong to him, he will not let you stay in a place of bondage. He just will not let you. Ephesians 3 tells us this. God's purpose in all of this, and this, in this context, means the gospel. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church, that's every born-again believer, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all of the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. God's glory is at stake. He has displayed to to the entire kingdom of the spiritual realm, us, as a display of his wisdom. God takes his own glory incredibly seriously. So if you are a believer who is presently struggling with sin, I want you to know something. The fact that you are aware of your sin is a good thing. The shame that you feel from that sin is a good thing. Because if you didn't have these, then I would be really concerned that God isn't actually working in your life. Hebrews 12 tells us, The Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as a child. So if you're feeling pangs of shame here this morning, if you are feeling that God has put his finger on sin in your life. Be glad. It may not feel like a good thing, but being disciplined never does at the present moment. But rejoice in this. If God is disciplining you, it's because he loves you. Now, I've heard well-meaning believers say that God doesn't bring feelings of conviction to Christians, and that if you're feeling convicted, then it's the enemy. But John sixteen seven says this. It is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin, and of God's righteousness, and the coming judgment. You see, the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin. Now, Satan might use overbearing feelings of past guilt, of past sin, that God has forgiven In order to keep you from freedom, keep you from that freedom that you have in Christ. But that is not the same as feeling convicted in the present about unconfessed sin. You see, brothers and sisters, if you are convicted of sin, you need to confess it. You need to bring it before our loving Heavenly Father, asking for forgiveness. Remembering this, his mercies are new every day. He loves you, and he gave up everything to rescue you, to turn you into something new, something beautiful and pure. In Revelation, we see the church described as a bride prepared for her groom. Christ has purified us and set us apart for himself. He has clothed us in his righteousness. So don't go rolling around in the dirt in your new bridal ground. If you're rolling around in the mud of sin, dirtying yourself, You need to stop it, and it needs to stop now. Confess your sin. We have a dedicated prayer team who will be here at the front. And you can find me or Pastor Pete afterwards, and we will pray with you. There is no judgment here. We have all sinned. But your sin must be dealt with, and hiding it will not work. So come and experience the love of God afresh today in his new mercies, in his long-suffering forgiveness and in his jealous love, which will not let you carry on living in sin. Now, the second point I want to make before I close is this. I've spoken about how we are to love. I've spoken about what should motivate us to love, and that is being loved by God. And I've spoken to those who might be struggling with sin. But I want to address those here this morning who have heard the words I've said, but haven't experienced the love I'm talking about. Maybe you don't believe what I'm saying at all. Or maybe you've been to church all of your life and believe everything I'm saying, but it doesn't relate to what you have experienced. You see, the love here that is on offer here this morning is real. It is genuine, and it really is unconditional. I can personally vouch for the fact that you can know God, and you can experience his love, and you can feel it. You see, I lived for the first 26 years of my life without knowing this love. But I went to church when I was younger, and I prayed and I read the Bible. But I never experienced the love of God like I did when I was born again at 26. And I continue to experience that love every day and in new ways all the time. It's just amazing, God's love. There's times when I'm on my own and his love will catch me afresh, And I literally start dancing around the room rejoicing in him. It's it's amazing. (laughs) It's just great. So I can stand here today and I can be a witness to the reality of God's love. The reality of being free from guilt and shame. Free from the power of sin and death. And I am telling you that if you are hearing these words and what I'm saying sounds completely foreign to you, then God is actually specifically calling out to you this morning. James four eight says this, Come close to God, and God will come close to you. And Acts 17.27 says, His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is close to us, and he wants you to come close to him. He has loved you from before you were even conceived. So please, come and meet him and experience his love. So I'm going to give some space in a minute for everyone to be quiet and to respond to God's prompting. So whether God has prompted you with his his finger on unrepented sin in your life and you need to confess that before him, or whether he has prompted you and shown you that you need his love, that you need to experience this love for the first time this morning, or whether you're here in a great place of being able to say, I know his love, and I live in his love, and I live out his love, and I can dance for joy because of it. And just spend some time in responding in whatever way God is prompting you. So let us respond in prayer and in the quiet, in repentance or praise, in desperation to know his love or rejoice in it. Let us pray. Lord, how can we love perfectly? We look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We see you and we experience your love. We delight in your love. We immerse ourselves in your love. And we are filled to overflowing in your love. And out of that overflowing, we are empowered to love like you, to love others in the impossible ways in which you call us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. For your amazing, unfailing love. In Jesus' name.